Lord. Amen. All right, please open your Bibles or phone apps to Luke 18, 1 through 8. There's also Bibles in front of you on the pews if you want. All right, so Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. He said, in a certain city there lived a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? All right, good morning, family. Thank you for making it out. Seems like half our church couldn't. So I'm so grateful for you. And I am just praying that God would take what is small because his word is really powerful and multiply it greatly forever for all of us. It would spread throughout our church and throughout our city. I'm going to do something unusual. I want to start off with a fairly long quote because it's so fitting for our passage today. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it out loud so you can track along. Oh my gosh. That, that's not how it was in my editing, I promise. Okay, so for those of you who have eagle eyes can read that, but let me read it out loud to you, and I, and I promise it's worthwhile every second. Now, let me, let me intro this quote. Um, there's a collection of biographies that I go back to regularly, um, written by John Piper. And the one I go back to most is called, about a pastor named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon has been dead for hundreds of years, but he pastored a church for 54 years. In the first 12 years, the majority of the church didn't want him to be their pastor. He was placed there, and they actively tried to get him to leave, to stop him. They would like lock the door so he can get into the church. Imagine 12 years of your church actively trying to get you to leave. Can you imagine the kind of perseverance you would have to have? You guys can sometimes not be kind for me for 10 days and I want to quit, you know? I'm just being, I'm just joking on that. But you know what I'm saying? Like we can so easily be discouraged. And so sometimes it's so helpful to revisit men and women of God from of old to remind us that our sufferings are light and momentary and they're normal for Christians, faithful Christians. So let me read this. This is Piper writing. What I found is that in my pastoral disappointments and discouragements, there is great power for perseverance in keeping before me the life of a person who surmounted great obstacles in obedience to God's call by the power of God's grace. I need this inspiration from another century because I know that I am, in great measure, a child of my times. Oh, well done back there. They split it up. And one of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. 
We're easily hurt. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened. And it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. A typical emotional response to trouble in the church is to think, well, if that's the way they feel about me, then I'll just find another church. We see very few healthy, happy examples today whose lives spell out in flesh and blood the rugged words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, from James 1, 2. When historians list the character traits of America in the last third of the 20th century, commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on the list. The list will begin with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem. And if we think that we are not children of our times, let us simply test ourselves to see how do we respond when people reject our ideas or spurn our good efforts or misconstrue our best intentions. We all need help here. Now that was long, but I hope it was worthwhile because those words nail me every time. I read those probably every six months. Because I can so easily be disheartened. I don't know if that resonates with you, that quote. And one of the areas that emotional fragility manifests in my life is being disheartened in my prayer life. Simply put, I give up too easily in my prayers. Recently, there were a handful of situations in my life where I prayed and prayed and labored and met for hours and hours and hours, and finally there was breakthrough. There's two situations in my life right now. Months and months, over years even, of praying, and finally seeing breakthrough, and I wept tears of joy, of gratitude. And then just right after that, weeks later, it all crumbled, and it became worse than before. And I was on the brink of despair. God, what are you doing? Does my prayer and does the word of God really do anything or is it impotent? What's the point of my labors? Do you even care, God, about these things? I thought this is what you wanted. These are all questions that have been coming out of my heart and I've been pouring out before the Lord. And listen, it's okay to be honest with God about your heart. He already knows it. And maybe you feel similarly right now in your prayer life. Maybe you prayed for something for years and you just gave up recently. And in God's wisdom, this passage was a sign for me today and for you, for me and for you. And I needed it. All week long, as I've been wanting to give up and go into despair, this passage has been constantly in my mind because as you guys know, I don't ever want to preach you something in here that I'm not first preaching to my own heart. And I've just prayed right before I came. I said, God, don't let me be a hypocrite. Don't let me be a hypocrite. Let me live out these realities we need this passage today. In this passage today, we're going to see someone who's in desperate need of justice and has no hope. And we see a God who is eager and faithful to bring about justice. And how God's people can go about getting justice in this world. And isn't that such a relevant topic for us today? Justice. We hear it all the time. Echoed throughout our streets on signs, on TV, on social media, the world is crying out for justice and rightfully slow. So, but can I just say this? The world doesn't know how to get justice. Lasting justice, 
the justice that we truly need. So our passage will also answer the burning question, how do we get justice? But as always, before we get to our text, we got to do a little bit of work. Because we've been on this beautiful journey throughout Isaiah for a month or so. And we've been away from the Gospel of Luke. And we're back in the Gospel of Luke, as you saw. And I need to kind of reorient ourselves and remind ourselves of the context. To be honest, this chapter, guys, I've read it over the years, and I never really got it. Because I forgot the context. I forgot chapter 17. So if you want to get chapter 18, you have to look at 17. So I want you to just quickly look at chapter 17 in your Bibles, because they're together. And if you look at how 18 starts, you can see how it's actually connected to 17. It's not a whole new thought. It's continuing what Jesus was talking about. And if you remember chapter 17, it ends with this call for Christians to be ready. Because when Jesus comes, it's going to come obviously, it's going to come surprisingly, it's going to come suddenly, it's going to come decisively. And you have to live in light of his coming. You have to be ready for his coming. And so the overall theme in chapter 7 is longing for the return of the Son of Man, Jesus, to come back in the end times and make all things new. And that same theme is continued in our passage today. So when you think of chapter 18, think of 17. If you want to see a connection, look at verse 22. And he said to the disciples, this is chapter 17, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the son, days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So keep that in mind, that, that line. This is during the time when Jesus has resurrected and ascended, and he's with the Father, and we're waiting for him to come back. And look at verse 8 of chapter 18. Let me show you how they're connected. Part of why I'm doing this, some of you guys may be like, why are you doing this? Is I'm trying to help you, teach you how to read your Bibles better, how to connect everything together. Verse 18, verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, you hear that line, the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So do you see how those two verses connect together to show this big picture that Jesus is talking about waiting for justice that's ultimately talking about end times realities? Now, let's get to the purpose. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to do a lot of work trying to figure out what's the purpose of this text. But the great news is that sometimes it just tells us straight up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect or for the reason that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. This phrase, not lose heart, is just one word in Greek. And this word is, can also be translated lose enthusiasm, be discouraged. Is anyone feeling like that this morning? Your heart is discouraged. You've lost enthusiasm in your prayers and in your spiritual life. Your heart is disheartened. You're not encouraged, encouraged, you're discouraged. And if you feel like that this morning, please keep listening. Now, let's look at our passage now, okay? I know that's been a lot of work, and maybe that felt a little heady, but that's really important. Because my goal as one of your pastors is to help you need me less. So you can go to the source more and see these things together, okay? Now, let's look at verse 2. We're going to get into the parable now. Jesus said... In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming at him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now let's kind of understand the cultural significance of the situation. 
Now, in this context, in this time, in this place of the world, if you were a widow, if you were a woman just in general, you would be extremely disadvantaged. There was no social security system. You were at the mercy of men. I'm sorry to say that. That was the reality at that time. And if your husband died, you depended on your sons. And if you didn't have sons, you depended on the goodwill, integrity, and charity of the community. And if they were not upright, then you were out of luck. And in this situation, we see this widow fighting for herself, fighting to get justice. Most likely, someone is trying to take something from her illegally and already has. So she's fighting for her life. It's not like she wants a better parking spot. It's something trivial. She's fighting for her life and going to this judge because no one else is going to the judge for her. She's on her own. She's begging this judge for justice. But what is the character of this judge? What does the text say? Two things. He didn't fear God and he didn't care about man. Didn't fear God and didn't care about man. Which is the opposite of what judges are supposed to be, right? That's the opposite of what you want in a judge. Uh, so, um, Mr. Lawyer, tell me who the judge will be for our court today. Um, well, yeah, he's a guy who doesn't fear God and doesn't care about you. Okay, that's not good, right? And you'll see how opposite it was from the design of the Old Testament. Do you guys know what judges were supposed to be like according to the Old Testament? Look at 2 Chronicles 19. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. This is a template of what a good judge should be like. 2 Chronicles 19, 6 through 7. And he said to the judges, consider what you do. For you judge, not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. For there is no injustice with our Lord our God. No or partiality or taking bribes. Isn't that a beautiful description of what a judge should be like? And so what do we see about this unjust, wicked judge? Verse 4, back to Luke chapter 18. For a while this judge refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice, so that, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This wicked, unjust judge eventually breaks. He gives her justice. He answers her request, not because he's just and definitely not because he gives a rip about her, but because he wants, he cares about himself and his sanity. He wants her to leave her alone because she is driving him insane with her constant requests. So Jesus, listen, is highlighting the heartless and unjust judge in order to make the point that God is nothing like that. He is creating a scenario where we see how wicked and how ridiculous and pathetic this judge is and saying, well, if the judge would eventually give justice, how much more God who is not like that judge at all, who's full of love, who's full of respect for people, full of justice. Look at verse six. We see Jesus making this clear. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? See, the point here is a contrast, comparison between the lesser to the greater. 
So if the lesser would do such a thing, how much more a greater thing? We see this in chapter 11. Remember I preached that sermon about fathers. And if wicked fathers who will still provide bread for most of their kids, how much more will God provide for you if you ask for the Holy Spirit? Do you remember that chapter? It's the same kind of thing that Jesus is doing. If this unrighteous, wicked, cold, heartless judge would bring justice, how much more God who's not like that at all? God has a big heart, deeply cares for his people, and no one cares about justice more about than God. What is God like? Think about it. Look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 with me. It's on the screen. Would you read this out loud with me? For the Lord your God. What a God. If you're going to court, wouldn't you want a, court, a judge who would be like that? Imagine what our country would be like if every single judge in our nation was like that. What would our nation be like? Our city be like? This is what our God is like. Now let's transition from what God is like to what God's people are called to do in light of who he is. So look, look at verse 7 again with me. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? In this passage, Jesus calls his people the elect. Who are the elect? Now, the elect is a category throughout scripture that is often a stumbling block, often debated by many, many Christians. And we get really caught up on who is the elect, or on the other hand, we'll get caught up on how does God have the audacity to even have such a thing as the elect? Now, if you've never studied the doctrine of election in the Bible, I commend it to you. It will change your life. It's worth careful, long study. But this passage isn't talking about that. It's not the emphasis. It just, he just merely mentions it in the passing. So we're not going to focus on that. I'm not going to get on a hobby horse on that because that's not what the text is doing here. But what, is, what can we tell for sure about this text about the elect? Well, we can tell what would they be like. What are they going to be doing? Well, let's look. What are the elect doing in this text? They are crying night and day. For what? Justice. Justice for what? What does that mean? Look, like, what, what, what would the justice be for? So to know what we're talking about, we got to zoom out again and look at our context and look out throughout the Gospel of Luke. Let me ask you a question. For those of you guys who've been with us from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, can you remember another time where we heard the phrase day and night and a widow? Day and night and a widow in the Gospel of Luke. You can't have read my sermon already and respond. Anyone? Anna. Anna. Do you guys remember Anna? She was a widow, super old, and didn't leave the temple day and night, fasting and prayer, longing for the coming of the king. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 37. And when a widow, and then was a widow until she was 84, she never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and prayer. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's Anna, who's longing for 
the renewal of all things, the redemption of all things. She's longing for the Savior, and God answers her prayers after dozens and dozens of years, decades. Answers her prayer, and she gets to see an eight-year-old, uh, sorry, eight-day-old Jesus in the temple. How amazing would that moment be? Praying for decades and decades, you get to hold Jesus. <laughs> amazing. Furthermore, if you remember the previous chapter, we looked at this whole section is about the return of the Son of Man, Jesus. So I take that this passage, when it talks about justice, is talking about our lives right now. Like all of us have experienced injustice in our lives in varying degrees. Some of us in significant, horrendous, egregious ways, and some of us in smaller ways and everywhere in between. And when you look at verse 1... He says that we should always pray and not lose heart. So I take that to say that this, chap this chapter is talking about our daily life of injustices. But also, if you look at verse 8, which we're going to go in, in a second, it's talking about ultimate justice that we're all longing for. Okay, so it's for both our temporary needs of justice and our global, eternal needs for justice. But listen... We need more than just temporary justice because there always will be injustice any, everywhere until Jesus makes things right. For example, a lot of you guys know that we, we've been burglarized twice. Our house has been ransacked twice, and they stole a lot of things that could be replaced, but they stole things that couldn't be replaced like Joanna's wedding ring. And I still pray that those thieves will be brought to justice, that they would come to Jesus and repent, join our church. But even if they did and returned the ring, which they probably have gotten rid of the ring years ago, there still would be thieves in the world, wouldn't there be? Even if we get justice in a situation, in a high-profile court case, there still will be injustice in the world. So what do we need? We need both justice in the temporary, in our life, but also we need justice in a global, lasting way. What we need is for something to happen so that there will be no need for justice. That justice will not be necessary anymore. So when Jesus returns, that's what's going to happen. Justice won't have to happen anymore because all will be made right. He will bring justice all who are still at large. And some of you here have suffered greatly under others. And those people have gotten away with it so far. But they will not when Jesus comes. You can bank on that. You can bank on God's eternal word that those people will be brought at large. Whoever did that thing to you and you think they're getting away, they will not get away. Both the, those living and those in the past throughout history. Jesus will right every wrong. He will bring global peace and there'll be no more evil. And that's the ultimate justice our world is longing and aching for. Not just one court case, one. That's public. We need a kind of justice that will come so that there will be no more court cases anymore. Now let's finish by looking at verse 8. Luke 18, 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, let me address this language of speedily. Because it's a little confusing when you think about it. Because what's the whole thrust of this passage? Is that you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to be patient and not lose heart and keep praying. That, that implies that it's going to take longer than we'd like. That Jesus is coming, it's going to delay at times, and it's going to feel hard. 
And by the way, we're not just losing heart because we're very impatient, though that may be true of you and me. It's trying to be patient in the light of suffering and injustice. So it's one thing to wait sitting on your butt for a while and you're losing your patience. It's another thing to wait while you're sitting on attack. When you're in pain, it exasperates your patience, doesn't it? And that's the reality of this text is teaching us that God's people are going to be afflicted and suffer in such a way that their patience and their hearts will be tested. And we're going to want to lose heart. We're going to want to give up. But he says, don't, don't give up. Always pray. Never lose heart. So how does this, does Jesus say he will give justice speedily? How does that reconcile? Well, again, remember in chapter 7, we see the same language of he's coming soon or coming quickly. And I think the big point is not that he's going to come quickly in the sense of like five minutes. But the manner of his coming, it's going to be coming quickly, surprisingly, swiftly, unexpectedly, decisively. It would be like the nations, if you study world history, when nations are taken over overnight and everyone wakes up the next morning, they're like, what just happened? In 24 hours, a whole nation can be taken over and it just paralyzes everyone. What just happened? It was so swift. That's what Jesus's coming will be like, except it will be completely just. And it'll be completely right. We see this reality in 2 Peter 3, 9, because a lot of times people say, well, Sam, the Bible says Jesus is going to come soon or quickly. How can you say that is true? The Bible must be false because look, it's been 2,000 years. He's still not here. You guys are, are following a made-up book. But what does 2 Peter 3, 9 say? Could, could you read this out loud? Because it's just so powerful. We just read this over our hearts. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient. Why has Jesus delayed his return? Because he's giving us more chances. He's giving you chances if you're not walking in the light right now. He's giving my neighbors chances. He's giving your parents or your children or your best friends or your coworkers more time to trust in him. His delay is not something that's impotent. He's impotent about it. It's, it's more about his character. It's about his heart. That's why he's delaying. So I take all this to say, and more passages too are in my mind as I say this. When Jesus comes, it's going to be sudden and decisive. And that's what the scripture means when it says quickly. Now let's look at the final part of our passage. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When he comes, will he find faith on earth? What does this mean? What, what is he meaning by this? Well, according to this text, a sign of your faith is how you pray. A lot of us have a, a grand view about our faith. Oh, man, Jesus is first, you know? We, we say a lot about our faith in our culture. But if you want to know what your faith is like, just look at your prayer life. They're deeply connected. Why? Well, according to this text, a sign of faith is night and day prayer. Because night and day prayer suggests you're truly hoping and trusting in the person you're praying to. For example, consider two kinds of people in your life. We all have people who we don't love that much, <laughs> we struggle with, 
they, they may not like you at all. Maybe they're even your enemy. Maybe they've wronged you greatly. And on the other hand, we all have people in our life who are generous and loving and good and kind. Who would you rather bring your request to? Well, obviously, the person whom you trust their heart and their character. You wouldn't spend night and day, day after day, praying and bringing requests to the person who you don't trust their heart. You don't trust their character. You don't think they have the power or the integrity to do something about your request, right? You would go to the person that you have great faith and great trust in their heart, in their character, in their ability, right? And so our prayers are a direct picture of what we think God is like, what his heart is like. Do we trust his power? Do we trust his heart? One of the keys to perseverance in prayer and in our life is having a very, very big, accurate, biblical view of God and putting all your hope and trust in him. See, if you see someone in your life who's steadfast and persevering in their prayers, you shouldn't say, wow, you are so steadfast and persevering in your prayers. You must be so morally strong. You must have such fortitude. No. You know what you should conclude? That person has a great view of their God. Are you tracking with me? This is hugely important because in my study of this passage, a lot of the pastors and a lot of the scholars, their big takeaway was, Christians, don't give up. Keep praying. That's it. But the way you go about doing that, the only hope you have to be able to continue to pray despite all hardship and despite every no that comes in your face, despite every hurdle, is that you are putting your hope and trust in God who's big and strong. And when you don't see his hand answering your prayers, you trust his heart. And that's something that I need to do right now, guys. There are things in my life that I do not get why he hasn't answered yet. God, why is it like this? This seems against your plan. But when you can't see his hand answering your plan, then you can trust his plan. You can trust his heart. You can say stuff like, God, I don't understand why you're not answering this prayer, but I can trust you. I know you. If you would come and die for me, then I know that your heart is trustworthy. I know that you're powerful and your plans are beyond my comprehension right now. Help me trust you. And so church, if you're going to be a persevering prayer warrior it must not start with you resolving to be a persevering prayer warrior it must start and be built on your vision of God your view of him so if your prayers are small it's because your God is small and it's not because God is small it's because your view of God is small so you need to cry out God enlarge my view of you enlarge my trust of you enlarge my heart's hope in you Church, we've talked a lot about justice in this passage. What? Just, just some. But we've talked a lot about what makes a good judge. And if we want justice in the world, we have to deal with those who are bringing injustice, right? You can't just deal with situations. You've got to deal with roots. But the tricky thing is you and I bring injustice in the world. You and I continue to spoil and stain this world in different ways. I'm not talking about the guy on TV who has a mugshot or a politician that we can't stand, but you and me. Let me share a very important principle in a passage in the Bible, some Proverbs 17, 15. If you are taking notes or you have your Bible, please underline, highlight, tattoo it. It's important. 
He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Maybe you've heard this passage before, but let me break it down very simply if that just went over your head. Simply put, it's an abomination if you're a judge and call an innocent person unjust or condemn an innocent person, right? That's just common sense. On the other hand, it's an abomination if you call a wicked person innocent, right? That is just at the very fabric of our being, we know that that is injustice. So now here is the problem. There is not a single innocent person in this room. Every single one of us have rejected God in our word, in our thought, in our deeds more times than we can count. All of us are guilty, especially me here. So justice, true justice, would be all of us here being condemned. And if God is just, and he is, he will condemn the guilty. Jesus can't bring justice to this world if he leaves a bunch of guilty people who continue to bring injustice in this world. So what shall we do? But God, in his kindness, does the unthinkable. Because he loves us, he sends his son to deliver us. Jesus, the innocent one, willingly takes the place of the guilty. So on the cross, Jesus is condemned as if he is the greatest sinner who ever lived. So that you and I, who put our trust and repents, will be treated like all we ever did was right. Treated like we are the innocent ones. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And if you want forgiveness of your sins, if you have a guilty conscience, you know you're guilty, you need to be cleansed. You can be. You can be. Jesus did it for you. So come, grab a member. Ask them what it means to be forgiven. Ask them what it means to repent and trust in Jesus. And they should know what, they, what to do. Now let me wrap this up, church. This parable is often called the parable of the persistent widow. The people who know you best, would they categorize or describe your prayer life as persistent? Would they say that your spiritual life is persistent, tenacious, steadfast? Or are you like many of the world, just easily blown to and fro by every wind, by every struggle, by every discouragement? Is there someone in your life that you've given up praying for? Or a situation that you've given up on? I know for me, there are some areas, some people that I have almost given up on. And this passage is calling me back to always pray and not lose heart. I want to call you to recommit to praying, not because you have so much patience or because you are so strong, but because God is. And you're putting your hope in him that he will do what is right. Listen, church, there are some situations that could make me weep right now if I thought about it in front of you. Weep like a baby in front of you. And I want to give up. I'm so tired of praying for these situations. I'm so sick of it. But I'm going to put my hope again in Jesus, that he's strong and he's faithful. And he's going to execute his plan in the right way, even if I don't get it in the short term. And so here's the good news, church. Here's more good news. There's a tangible, tangible opportunity for you to join in growing in these realities that I want to invite you with the other elders. So we're going to bring in the new year with a three-day fast. 
starting January 3rd through and ending on the 5th. Some of us are going to be fasting pretty much everything. Some of us have to do different things based off our situation. We invite you to join us. We invite you to take three days of the new year and pound heaven's door for a situation in your life. Maybe it's your cold heart towards God. Maybe you don't have godly sorrow. Or maybe it's an addiction you just can't kick. Or maybe it's unforgiveness that you can't let go. Or maybe it's your marriage that's falling apart or just mediocre at best. Or your, your kids who are walking away from the Lord. And that you would just take a hold of heaven and just say, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm going to keep praying because I'm hoping and trusting you for three days. And we're going to send out resources and guides to help you throughout that, throughout that process. And on the third day, we're going to break our fast together here in the Fellowship Hall with the Lord's Supper and celebrate and, and putting our hope and longing for Jesus to return. So, church, I want to call you to bother God this year. Remember Luke 11? He wants to be bothered. He's not like fathers who are irritated when we talk to him. Let's bother God this year. Let us always pray and not lose heart, and let us cry out night and day for Jesus to come back, because then and only then will we have true justice. Let's pray. Father, we know that this passage can't do anything unless our hearts receive these truths. Persistent prayer people, unless you give us a greater vision of who you are, our strength is not in our own fortitude or our own patience. Our patience is so small. We can give up so quickly. I can give up so quickly. So we need you to strengthen our hearts, encourage our hearts this morning in a greater hope and vision of you trusting in you, Lord. Lord, this world is so messed up. We have such darkness in our city and such darkness in some people who are so close to our hearts. And Lord, we just put our hope and trust that you're going to make all things new one day. Help our hearts repent right now of putting our trust in ourselves and giving up on you, giving up on our prayers, and freshly take up the call to always pray and not lose heart for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.